I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good Sunday morning to you. Welcome once again. Today is the first day of September. You are listening to Lumpen Radio's I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. And today we have a special early September treat for you. We are joined by the author of Never a Lovely So Real. It is a biography of Nelson Algren out now from Norton. We are joined on the phone by Mr. Colin Asher. Colin, are you with us? I am. Good morning. Thanks Good morning to you. Thanks so much for joining us on this Sunday morning when you could be doing something else like watching football games, raking leaves, sleeping, sleeping, enjoying <laughs> Labor Day. Uh, your new biography, this is a, a comprehensive biography of the very popular and Chicago-based author Nelson Algren, who we've discussed a number of times in the show. He is one of the Midwest's uh, most famous authors. Uh, to modern fans, he's probably best known for The Man with the Golden Arm, uh, made into a movie, of course, with Frank Sinatra. But you have a very um, deep dive into his life, uh, unearthing, quite frankly, a lot of facts that I didn't know. Uh, and you have a very uh, kind of a key thesis that you discuss in your foreword that comes through the book that I want to get to in a minute. I don't want to spoil it yet because we do have a couple readings that are coming up that kind of get to where you think Nelson Algren's career kind of went off the rails. But I wonder if you could start by talking about what Nelson Algren means for literature in general and what it meant to you. Why did you pursue this project in the first place? Well, what does he mean for literature in general? It's, it's sort of an open question. You know, it's, I've done <clears throat> a number of events in Chicago and a number of events in the East Coast, and, um, you know, I'm generally in touch with a, a sort of literary crowd the, the country over. I think what he means to Chicago literature is a much different thing than what he means to American literature more broadly. And, mm-hmm. and fortunately, I think for most of the country, um, you know, he's not on the radar at all. You know, when I was working on this book, it took about six years. I was living in Brooklyn the entire time, and you know, there, when I would mention his name, just blank stares and polite nods hmm. every time. Um, so what does he mean for literature? Well, uh, broadly, I mean, I think he represents this strain of American literature that um, has really fallen out of fashion. You know, he got, his, he got his start in the 1930s as a radical writer and really believed that literature could be a vehicle for social revolution. He was a communist. He was a member of the Communist Party. Um, later on... Um, those ideas transform a little bit. You know, he, he loses faith with, with communism and with the Communist Party, but he still believes that literature has a sort of social justice mission. Um, and, and that he holds on to that through the peak of his career. And that is not really the way that we talk about literature these days. You know, he would, he would talk about how the, the writer's job is to tell the unmitigated truth, no matter what the cost to the writer, no matter what the cost to their career, um, no matter if people rail against them or if they celebrate them. And then, you know, I feel that these days with American literature, uh, you know, as often as not, our, our conversation really focuses on craft, right, on, on beauty and on style, um, on sort of deep personal individual insights, uh, but not so much on literature's role in shaping politics or shaping society. Uh, you know, we've lost touch with that. To some extent, since Colin, the 40s sorry, and 50s. Yes. sorry to yeah. interrupt real quick, but one thing I, I found interesting about your writing on Nelson was one, his connection with other uh, 
American writers. I think that's one way to think about his uh, standing in American literature. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about s- who some of those writers were. And the other thing was when he started to get into his nonfiction, you write about how he um, he uh, foresaw that the style of, of what do they call it new new journal the new journalism new journal, sure. yeah mm-hmm. yeah before it was even in fashion. I did want to mention something too when you were talking about his uh, commitment to. You know, when we talk about social justice, I think in 2019, it's a lot different than what we were talking about when he was writing. And also, you know, I I think that we get, you know, for example, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, who's one of my favorite writers, put out this essay collection that was very right wing. And he just got lambasted um, from the literary critics. And I think, you know, that it's a very, um, this you know, you can't write from a oh, non-social justice viewpoint these days without getting slaughtered. Um, That's my opinion. And, you know, so does literature account for the truth on all sides or is it just from one side? And, uh, you know, the the literary criticism tends to come from the left. And, you know, I'm not a right-wing person, but this is just what I've seen. Um, And, you know, I don't like Brett Easton Ellis' current essays, but I think, you know, you can't discount his past writings and we're not talking about him today but I, I think it's pertinent to the conversation yeah so there's there's a lot to unpack there i think that there, yeah, there's a couple yeah. things that that just to kind of sum it up for the readers i think you know mike is making a, a good point here about you do make the case that he, he presaged the new journalism and i think that there is a difference when we're talking about social justice as part of literature in nelson algren's period and and as today when somebody like eve ewing might be writing about it yeah, well, like you say, a lot to unpack. I'll try and take them in order. I, I think you first asked about his connections in the literary world. Um, and, you know, it, one thing that was sort of fascinating to me about Algren when I first encountered his work and so the ethos surrounding him, it, it seemed like there's this impression that he was almost an anti-intellectual, that he was a guy who, because he wrote about, you know, card players and and prostitutes and drug addicts, that that must be his social milieu. And one thing I discovered in going through his letters and other people's letters is that he was deeply involved in the literary and intellectual world his whole life. So when he got his start uh, in the 30s, uh, Richard Wright was his best friend for a number of years, and the two of them supported and encouraged each other uh, until Wright's career skyrocketed and then Auburn's did, following shortly thereafter. and, you know, even even in his earliest days, when he was not himself much of a name, he would try to support other writers. You know, I found some fascinating letters. You know, his first novel came out in 35, and it was a absolute failure at the time. Um, and his publisher actually wrote to him for years afterward, saying, um, you know, do you have anything else for me? And, and instead of responding and begging for a new contract, he would send short stories from other young radical writers onto the publisher. Um, and that sort of... You know, that, set, that was a theme throughout his career. Later on in his life, he, um, when he was a, a big name, but definitely on the downside of the slope of his career, he helped out some notable folks. Um, um, and, and not people that you would necessarily think of in the same, you know, they would mention the same breath as Auburn. Um, yeah, Don it was DeLillo surprising. Is the one. Yeah, Don DeLillo is the one that came to mind. And, yeah, me too. Um, it, Russell Banks, too. Absolutely. Well, Russell, I think Russell's work has a lot more in common with Auburn's work. Oh, I but see what you mean. When I was, yeah, thinking, yeah. I was thinking contemporary, you know, and mm. I didn't know that they had a connection. The one that really blew me away is he used to play cards with William Freak and the director of The Exorcist. <laughs> he did. 
did, yeah. He used to play cards with Friedkin. I mean, again, he, he was connected to the artistic community throughout his career. And just to come back to DeLillo, um, you know, I found out that they had a, a connection to each other. He couldn't find out much about it. And, of course, like everybody, I had heard that DeLillo um, is famously publicity shy. Not a hermit at all. You know, he socializes, but that he didn't like the spotlight. Uh, and just... I decided to take a Hail Mary and reach out to his agent, making clear that I wasn't interviewing him about his own work, but just wanted to talk about Algren. And uh, he responded almost immediately and sat down and gave me an interview, for which I was eternally grateful. And, uh, I mean, that story is actually one of my favorite in the book, even though it only takes up a page or so. But, you know, DeLillo, as you guys know from reading the book, DeLillo was on a summer vacation in the 50s, uh, had never written a thing, had no connection to the literary world, um, he had written one college story, I think he wrote. Yes, one college story, that's right. But in his interview to me, he tells me he didn't know any writers, didn't know what it meant to be yeah. a writer, yeah. had never met anybody who made money on it, uh, but had quit his job because he was, sick, <laughs> he was sick of working and had these sort of vague aspirations to become a writer and just by chance ended up being on vacation in the same town as, as Nelson Algren. And that's crazy. DeLillo, an insanely shy person by his own account, um, Spots Algren at a bar uh, in this little vacation town on Long Island and works up the nerve to approach him, just goes and knocks on his door. You know, it was a small enough town that he just asked around, you know, where's Nelson Algren staying? Found out, knocked on his door, and the two of them spent the summer together sitting on Algren's stoop and looking at the beat and talking about literature. Uh, Algren had gone to the island with a deadline. He had to write a magazine piece, and he had brought an electric typewriter to finish it on there's no electricity on the island that we <laughs> told him this <laughs> so he got there uh, that's actually why he was at the bar the bar was the only place in the area that uh, had electricity because it had this huge generator um so delillo ends up loaning algren a manual typewriter and algren spends the summer working on delillo's typewriter afterward um they stay in touch actually there's some lovely letters um, between them in delillo's archive in texas uh, they stay in touch and algren introduced DeLillo to uh, his agent, to Algren's agent, Candida Donadio, who was at the time the biggest agent in the business. Um, she didn't end up taking DeLillo on, but DeLillo told me he was always grateful for the contact. And then later on when DeLillo did get a contract for his first book, he sent the manuscript to Algren. And Algren, uh, I suppose, Americana. Yeah, I think that's DeLillo's first novel. Yeah, yeah. Algren... Um, Provided editorial feedback, which uh, DeLillo told me was very tough but very fair, and he appreciated it. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a DeLillo connection, uh, Russell Banks, obviously. Um, and then, you know, one that had never occurred to me but didn't surprise me at all uh, once I heard about it was Rachel Kushner. They, they had no direct contact with each other. Kushner didn't start writing, obviously, until after Algren was dead. But uh, she wrote a really lovely piece for the National Book Awards website, talking about how Algren had influenced her and, and her, his work had sort of pushed her to want to go beyond her comfort zone um, and explore new parts of the world. And, you know, if you read her work, I think that you can... Flamethrowers? Is that, that correct? Yeah. She did the flamethrowers. Yeah, that was yeah, a fantastic, fantastic. The Mars Room was her most recent novel. I usually don't, yeah, like, I usually don't like books about artists, but flamethrowers was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and Telex from Cuba, I think, was her first, and yeah, now Marjoram, yeah. as Jeremy just said. Yeah. Two other big ones were um, Cormac McCarthy and Thomas Pynchon. I was I was per surprised about the Pynchon thing. I know, in terms of style, right, they right, couldn't yeah. be much farther off. And, you know, I 
to be honest, I didn't even reach out to pension because I've heard from so many people <laughs> that it's just not worth the time. But there is this lovely letter in, in Algren's archive where pension, they had the same agent. And after wow. Algren's book, Conversations with Nelson Algren came out, pension wrote to the agent saying, you know, his ideas about literature really pushing me to, to evaluate my own stuff, to think about what literature should be, um, which I thought was lovely. And same with same with uh, Cormac McCarthy. There's a letter that uh, McCarthy wrote to Algren. I believe it was after Algren reviewed Sutri, hmm. uh, which was McCarthy's, I don't know, fifth novel, something like that. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. And Algren loved it, reviewed it, and he got a letter out of nowhere. It, one of the sweet side notes there is that, you know, at this point, Algren is near the end of his life and hasn't had a big book out in a very long time. Um, and in letters to his friends, he is like giddy because he received a letter from Cormac McCarthy <laughs> um, praising him and talking about how, you know, I think McCarthy says, you're one of the people who made me want to be a writer, um, which really, uh, Algren really party loved that. What about Vonnegut, too? Didn't he have a oh, connection yeah. to Vonnegut? He did, yeah. They were, I mean, they were friends. By the time they met, Vonnegut already had a career and didn't need any help from Algren. But they ended up teaching together at Iowa. And Algren sort of famously hated... Um, I was going to say, teaching is a loose uh, description for, for how Mr. Algren <laughs> conducted his classes, according to your book. Indeed, yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. So he, he did run his classes in a very unorthodox way. You know, the, the typical writer's workshop thing is... You read student work, the students read each other's work and, and critique, and, and Algren sort of famously believed that many of his students weren't writing well enough uh, for it to be worth their work to be critiqued in class. And so he would bring in work that he thought was worthy, and he would read, you know, he would read um, Hemingway to them, or, you know, he'd pick out something that he thought had some merit. And so, of course, people hated this, and, and students dropped his class. You know, interestingly, and I try to get this through in the book, Vonnegut's take was a little different, because Vonnegut made the point in a number of interviews that while Almgren ran his class in a very unorthodox way, um, it was always clear how much he loved literature, it was always clear how much he loved, loved talking about it, and so he would actually meet with his students um, in less formal settings and provide them wonderful literary feedback. Um, you know, there's, one, there's a little anecdote that made its way into my book. Um, I might... I might mangle this gentleman's name. Burns Ellison, I think. Yeah, yeah. that's his name. He's a young writer. Um, basically signed up at Iowa for that semester just because he heard Algren was... And the two of them end up having a friendship. They end up being in the same poker game together. And Ellison would say, you know, the classes were fairly dysfunctional, but he also talks about bringing some of his work to Algren's house, um, you know, whenever on the weekends and the afternoons, and Algren would sit down and tear the whole thing apart and suggest rewrites and do much more than most instructors would do. Um, so yes, teaching is probably uh, more a term of art than a statement of fact. Yeah. Um, but he, he, he was engaged with the students on some level. But to, to rewind to the Vonnegut thing, they were both teaching there. Um, and, and they struck up a friendship. Um, and they stayed in touch. Well, they stayed in touch actually for the, the rest of Auburn's life. Not always steadily, but... Um, when Auburn died in 81, Vonnegut was living not that far away. Uh, they were both in Long Island at the time. And so they saw each other um, sporadically from the 60s all the way until 81 with Auburn's death. And, you know, Vonnegut always respected Auburn's work, and Auburn likewise always respected Vonnegut's work. I think they met right before Slaughterhouse-Five came out. 
Hmm. Um, so, you know, their, their careers were on different trajectories. Auburn was sort of um, sliding into obscurity. Vonnegut was about to have a meteoric rise. I appreciate you doing all the tie-ins to the contemporary, or, you know, a lot of these guys are dead, but um, with Russell Banks, Cormac McCarthy, Rachel Kushner, um, or is mm-hmm. it Kushner? Kushner. Kushner, yeah. Rachel Kushner. Because we don't, we've, we're kind of immersed in Elgren here on the show. Our second guest, our first live, was a another Elgren biographer, mm-hmm. but it was more of the general story, and I, I, I appreciate uh, the three of us are all non-academic literature lovers that like to talk about books and that's why we got started on the show and Algren's a huge influence on me and mm-hmm. I, I appreciated that tie-in because and his connections with Hemingway that you discuss a little bit in the book he's somewhat falling out of a fashion now which is is, is sad because even though he was a tough guy he is also a phenomenal writer and I, I, mm-hmm. I think they had a pretty grudging respect for each other correct? Well, I mean, not grudging on Algren's part. I think maybe grudging on Hemingway's part. I mean, Algren just loved Hemingway and championed him. Um, you know, Hemingway, I think, had his misgivings about Algren. You know, Hemingway was famously, um, uh, I'm trying to say this without uh, violating the seven dirty words rule. Uh, <laughs> he was antagonistic towards, uh, <laughs> antagonistic towards uh, other writers and, you know, was insulting in letters, you know, even to Faulkner. And so I think it was very hard for Hemingway to admit uh, another writer's talent. But he, he did so with Algren. You know, he championed Algren's second book, um, Never Come Morning. He was living in Cuba at the time and reportedly, you know, telling all the literary folks who passed through Cuba uh, to pick the book up and, and just paying attention to Algren. And then, of course, Hemingway champions Algren when The Mail of the Golden Arm comes out and writes, uh, you know, a glowing promotional blurb saying Algren's essentially the best writer working in America at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Algren, you mentioned that Hemingway's passing out of fashion and, and this sort of tough guy image he had. Um, you know, Algren never read Hemingway like that. And actually, you know, after Hemingway's death, he wrote quote, elo- quite eloquently um, about the fact that Hemingway really was not the macho person he presented himself to be, but that he was actually um, a, a broken man, a man who had seen war and experienced trauma. Um, I did want to clarify, was, I did want to clarify, yeah. I'm talking about today's um, views on Hemingway, not Elgren's, I apologize. Oh, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm saying I think that, yes, that's the image he's taken on, and yes, he's passing out of fashion for the reason, but but I was just trying to say that's not what Algren liked about Hemingway's stuff, and Algren actually <laughs> thought Hemingway was greatly misread. Yeah, and of course, a number of other people have thought that as well. Before we get to... Um, one of your readings, because this time is just flying by on the show, as it often does. I kind of want to return to one of the first questions we asked you real quickly before we play this reading, because there is a central thesis in your book about why you mm-hmm. think Algren's career went off the rails, and the reading directly speaks to it. Um, but I would wonder if you could just speak to a little bit about why you think Algren, in terms of literature fans in America, he, he had such a pivotal presence, and he is kind of, like Sherwood Anderson, faded out when he was such an influential person. Why do you think that is um, for modern-day literature fans? I mean, as I said in the beginning, I think that... Uh you know his his style of writing uh, is generally passing out of fashion. It, it seems like you're alluding more to the FBI stuff. Correct. Right? Yes. Where you want to comment? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So part of my thesis in the book, as as you bring up, is that I think that the FBI 
<clears throat> played a great role um, in the sidelining of Auburn's career. Um, and that, you know, I will try not to go on too long, but that came about in a number of ways, and I think that it had a great effect on his legacy. So, you know, the Man with the Golden Arm comes out in 1949, um, just as the Red Scare is ramping up. Um, and, you know, I sometimes think probably the last moment the book could have come out, because Auburn's connections to the political left were well-known and had been well-known. By 1949, uh, the FBI had been keeping track of Auburn on and off since, for nine years, since 1940. Right. Um, and then immediately after the book comes out, he starts having a hard time. Um, he starts having a hard time publishing his work, which is remarkable. Right? He wins the first National Book Award for this book. It's a bestseller. It's lauded by most everybody important. Um, but the next book he writes, um, Chicago City on the Make. He wrote for a magazine. Uh, all the political content was cut, and his publisher only took it on uh, after the book or after the text was finished. It was actually the first book he ever wrote without an advance. Um, after that, he gets commissioned to write a book-length work about the politics of, of literature, uh, something that eventually was published long after his death as nonconformity. And his publisher pays for this, um, pays for this book, uh, actually sends an editor out to Auburn's home in Gary to work on refining the book, uh, and then Auburn hands it in and here's nothing for months. Well, what's happening in that period, the intervening period there, is that uh, Auburn has been um, denied a passport by the State Department um, for the explicit reason that, um, that he had past ties to the Communist Party. Um, also, in the years between the publication of The Man with the Golden Arm and the suppression of nonconformity, Auburn had publicly supported the Hollywood Ten, um, held fundraisers, raising money for uh, their legal defense. Um, he had become, I believe his title was vice chair of the community to defend uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, which, you know, at the time, this is sort of social poison to be willing to defend the Rosenbergs. Right. Uh, and gave a number of speeches about throughout Chicago supporting Rosenberg. So uh, he is, actually, there's a nice quote, I don't think I made its way into my book, but somebody from the Hollywood Ten said, at the time, everybody was running away from us, and Alwyn was running towards us. Right. Um, he's also uh, making speeches, denouncing the Red Scare, insulting McCarthy, um, and warning writers that they need to be part of opposing the Red Scare, and they need to be challenging the government, and they need to be challenging HUAC. Um, so all this is in the background, and he gets this book suppressed in 53. Um, afterward, he tries to... Um, tries to get a contract to write a new novel, something that he had written a good amount of, and Doubleday uh, will not give him an advance for the new novel, which, again, is remarkable. Auburn is easily one of the five most famous writers in the country at the time. Right. They refuse to give him an advance. Um, instead, they pay him to rewrite his first novel, uh, Somebody in Boots. So he starts doing that, takes two years, give or take, uh, and ends up, <laughs> despite the fact that they hadn't paid him to, ends up writing a new book, which becomes Walk on the Wild Side. Mm -hmm. um, he hands that book in, hoping that uh, Doubleday will pay him significantly for it. That's his publisher at the time. Uh, and instead, uh, they reject the book. Now, one thing that I make a point of is that what happens between him... Um, 
finishing the book and getting the rejection is that he was subpoenaed by the House and American Activities Committee, um, which, to the best of my knowledge, has not been widely reported before. Um, he was finishing... Uh, he had finished the manuscript, was getting ready to send it to New York, and he gets this HUAC subpoena. He has no money at the time, and he ends up reaching out to Doubleday. This is by his own account. Uh, he reaches out to Doubleday and asks their attorneys to try to squash the subpoena, which apparently they were successful in doing. But as Doubleday is considering whether or not to publish A Walk on the Wild Side, they're also having their attorney squash a House and American Activities Committee right. subpoena for Algren. And then they reject the book. Now, their argument for rejecting the book is that uh, it would run afoul of censorship laws. And, you know, I think that that is sort of a specious argument because not long after Doubleday rejects it, I mean, literally within a couple of months, I believe, another publisher picks it up, asks Algren to make some minor changes, which he happily makes, and the book is released and becomes a, a bestseller. Well, you know, the question of why does Doubleday reject it and why does a second publisher pick it up two months later, uh, you know, one answer to that is Doubleday knew about the House and American Activities Committee subpoena and the second publisher did not. Right. Um, so, yes, I, yeah, I put a lot of stock in the influence that the government had on sidelining Auburn's career. There's more to say, but it sounds like you want to play a clip. Well, we're going to get to it right after the break because we want to play this clip. We're going to play some underwriting. Uh, don't go anywhere. We are speaking with Con Asher. He is the author of Never a Lovely So Real. It is out now from Norton. We're going to hear a reading from Con's book right now. As always, our reader is Shanna Van Volt. Uh, today, the music is by Ms. Jamie Branch. Uh, she's one of our favorites here on the show. Colin, you know, don't go anywhere, right? We're going to get you after the half hour. All right, I'll be All here. Right. So here's a selection from Colin's book. We'll be right back. You're listening to I-94. Friends flitted through the single room on Ontario Street in the spring to see the newlyweds. And even at its beginning, 1937 felt swollen with endings. Abe Aaron visited and brought the news that he was thinking about letting his Communist Party responsibilities slide so he could write more. He published under the pen name Tom Butler, but he wasn't publishing much. There was a long short story on his desk that wanted to become a novel but never did because he had no time to work on it. Richard Wright visited too and the three old friends read letters that Aaron's little brother Chester mailed from North Butler, Pennsylvania and sent back edits. Good paragraph, they wrote. Move that sentence. You should be a writer, they told him. Wright's visits were part of an extended goodbye. Most of the young artists and writers with a tinge of talent flee the city as if it were on fire, he said the year before and now it was his turn to join them. One of his stories, Big Boy Leaves Home, had recently been selected for an anthology, and he was planning to use the attention it brought him to establish himself in New York City. He knew few people there and had no job or apartment waiting, but he still believed moving east would improve his prospects. Wright left Chicago on the last Friday in May with $40 in his pocket and made it to New York just in time for the Second American Writers' Congress, a much different event than the one he attended two years earlier, and a sad coda to the idealistic and creative period that began when he, Aaron, and Nelson became close friends. The Congress was being held at Carnegie Hall that year, and the audience's mood was grim. Attendance was one-eighth what it had been the first time, and the Spanish Civil War, not the Workers' Revolution, was the main topic of conversation. When the Congress opened on June 4, a statement written by Albert Einstein was read aloud. Then portions of a film shot on the front lines of the fighting in Spain were screened, and Ernest Hemingway took the stage. He had just returned from the war, and the speech he had prepared was his first. 
He was 36 years old and his wide Midwestern face looked too wholesome for his subject. Every time the fascists are beaten in the field, they salvage that strange thing they call honor by murdering civilians, he said. If I described it, it would only make you vomit. It might make you hate. But we do not want hate. We want a reasoned understanding of the criminality of fascism and how it should be opposed. We must realize that these murders are the gestures of a bully, the great bully of fascism. There's only one way to quell the bully, and that is to thrash him. Hemingway was trying to rouse his audience, but they were too scared to be inspired. Most knew people who were fighting in Spain at the time, and some had already lost friends to the war. Other speakers followed Hemingway, but their message was so uniform the Times didn't distinguish between them. Directly or by implication, the paper reported, the speakers, themselves writers, exhorted their fellow craftsmen to join the fight against fascism as a matter of self-preservation. The single message of the Congress was unity, but in the years that followed, it was remembered instead as the moment when the literary establishment's long flirtation with the Communist Party soured. On the final day of the session, a group of writers interrupted a meeting to announce they were breaking with the party and siding with a dissident. We are for Trotsky, they said. As they spoke, Joseph Stalin was dispatching his political rivals in Moscow. A trial at the beginning of the year had ended with 13 executions, another was underway and more were expected. The protest was a small thing, just six people standing up in a room, but it set the terms for a conflict that divided the left for years. It was the moment when dreams about the glorious Soviet homeland and global revolution gave way to flat, calculated declarations about the need for discipline, compromise, and sacrifice. News of the protests reached Chicago in a letter from Richard Wright, and its arrival fractured both the Writers' Project and the League of American Writers. The Stalinists in each group lined up on one side, everyone else lined up against them. It was a quarrelsome situation, one local writer said. Abe Aaron found Wright's account hard to believe. He remained unconvinced the protest would have any effect until the party dismissed a friend of his for having Trotskyist quote-unquote tendencies a few weeks later. His faith died then. I'm letting my party membership slide and mean to do no more organizational work at all, he wrote. Wright was more sanguine. If the Soviet Union needed to cleanse the party's ranks in order to remain strong, he felt, then so be it. Nelson sided with Wright and continued to back the party. He wrote to Howard Rushmore, the editor of The Daily Worker, and asked for information he could use to defend the Moscow trials to his co-workers. When Rushmore responded with several articles, Nelson thanked him. These will become part of my arsenal of arguments for use against the guys who are more left than the communists, Nelson wrote. Incidentally, we have a flock of such in the office of the Fed Writers Project where I work. In fact, we have about one of every variety, Trotskyist, Matikite, Council Communist, United Workers' Party, one National Socialist. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to Lumpen Radio. This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, and you are listening to I-94. We are speaking with the author, Colin Asher. He is the author of Neville, uh, excuse me, Never a Lovely So Real. That's apparently very tough for me to say. A new biography of Nelson Algren, out now from Norton. Colin, I wanted to share a uh, an anecdote with you. So 
I don't know if you ever heard about the backlash. There was a Nelson Elgar Memorial Fountain in the old Polish neighborhood here, and they were really uh, upset about naming it that. But there was a, a new li- I'm a librarian, and they, there's a new there was a new library built in Bucktown about ten years ago, and they wanted to name it the Nelson Elgar Memorial. Well, not Memorial, but the Nelson Elgar Library. And it turned out the commissioner found out that he stole books and bragged about it because they didn't have any of the copies of his works yeah, in the yeah, library. Oh, yeah, that's right. They wouldn't take it. Yeah, so they, it's now just the Bucktown branch, so Nelson didn't get his <laughs> library. So. But supposedly, supposedly they're not naming libraries after people anymore. So Got it. Yeah. Just well, after yeah, former I mayors. The, <laughs> I heard the sound story. Last time I was in Chicago, somebody told me, and I haven't confirmed this, but um, there's a high school library, I think in Albany Park, that's named after Algren. Oh. Like I said, I haven't confirmed that, but somebody somebody mentioned that to me uh, when I was in town, I think for Prayer's Row. Oh, oh. yeah, that's where um, uh, that, his that mom nice lived up there. Oh, yeah, his mom lived well, in Albany he, Park. Well, and he did, yeah. I mean, yeah. he moved up there, um, I want to say when he was 11 or 12, I don't remember the exact age now, but yeah, he... Um, Went to Albany Park High. Uh, I was on the varsity basketball team, actually. You know, it's it's funny that you start off with that anecdote. We could probably spend the last twenty minutes of the show listing all the times Algren thought he got the shaft or did get the shaft, <laughs> yeah. and that was kind of the the a big part of the story of his, the latter half of his career. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, one of the things that I love about this this bio, Colin, is that you really get a sense for all the different people he was as at once and also as his his career went on can you speak a little bit to how he changed well and his self-mythology too because mm-hmm. yeah yeah you mentioned in yeah. the book that he was a big drinker and it, that people portray him as this bar hopping alcoholic that just you know yeah 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 i i honestly i can't thank you guys enough for asking i've done a number of interviews now i know he picks up on that and to be perfectly honest that is the thing that I feel most passionately about in the book. You know, when I first got into Algren, <clears throat> you know, I, I started with his work, right? And then, you know, you can find sort of scattered pieces um, by friends or associates or, uh, you know, people who just heard rumors about him and decided to mythologize them. And, you know, he came across when I first encountered him, to be perfectly honest, is not the sort of person I would really want to know, you know. Uh, as you say, you know, the mythology is that he was brusque, that he was loud, um, you know, that he was a hard drinker, um, that he was incredibly coarse with people. Um, and, you know, there are there are aspects of that in his personality, right? I, there's no way around it. But one of the things that I really loved discovering, and I was glad to find out as I did the research, is that, you know, there's this sort of shift in his personality. And if you go real deep into the sources, um, you know, the first part of his life, People describe him in a much different way than they did in the sort of the second part of his life when his career is on the downside. You know, when he was in his 20s and 30s, people uniformly described him as quiet, diffident, if anything, overly serious, right? Everybody talks about how he was famous for being the guy who was just sort of leaning against the wall at the party watching everybody. And he talked about this quite a bit himself. You know, that's how he got some of his best material, not by dominating a conversation or telling the best anecdote at every party, but showing up everywhere, all different parts of the city, and, and just sitting back and watching. You know, he talked about himself, even when he was writing his best novels, as a reporter, and, that, and that's how he got his material. So 
that was the beginning of his life. He was an intensely ideological guy. You know, he was critiqued at the time in the 30s and 40s, uh, not for being too wild and garrulous, but for being too severe. I mean, he, he backed Stalin. He backed Stalin long after a lot of his friends had given up on Stalin, and he believed in the revolution um, for a time. As I said earlier, the literature was part of fomenting a revolution, and so he, he saw this real, I mean, almost sort of messianic purpose to what he was doing. Um, and that, that carries on. You know, he breaks with Stalin eventually, like all smart people did, uh, when it becomes clear what Stalin was doing. But he maintains this incredible faith in literature, uh, you know, through the composition of Man with the Golden Arm and through the composition of City on the Make and, and through the composition of Nonconformity. And he lived in those years a pretty hermetic life. You know, people talk about how he would just be home by himself all the day. His publisher, um, Ken McCormick from Doubleday, uh, or sorry, his editor, I should say, uh, did a, an interesting oral history where he talked about how when you would visit Algren, it was, it was sort of like stepping into another world, right? During the day, he kept his telephone wrapped in a blanket in a drawer <laughs> so that he wouldn't be disturbed by its ringing. Um, and this is at the point in his life when he's involved with Simone de Beauvoir. And, you know, as I try to bring across in the book, for this period, basically 40 to 48, 49, with the exception of the time he spent in Europe during the war, um, that, that's his life. He's home alone. He's working. Once he becomes involved with Dubois, uh, he's writing her letters constantly. She's writing him letters. He's reading all the time. And then he would go out at night and collect material. You know, he would sort of haunt saloons. He would sit in on poker games. Um, he would go to police lineups. But he really saw this as research, and that's the way he talked about it. And it's now, interesting, it's interesting yeah. not to cut you off, but I mean, that, that is <laughs> interesting because one of the things I found very fascinating about your book was the fact that you were able to detail so much of his early life. And going back to it, you noted that when he went to college, and he went to college basically up by his own bootstraps. He, he went to college basically because they, there were really no other options for him. He was very uh, interested in Marcus Aurelius and, and pretending to be a stoic. He, he didn't go out with other people. You, you have some memorable lines about him trying to go to the brothels that were outside of Fraternity Row. But one of the things that really gripped me in the early tellings of, of Nelson's life was the fact that he then became a very kind of peripatetic person going around the country. And there's a great story about how he hooks up with these two Luthers who seem to be uh, almost characters and characters of their own in a Nelson Algren novel. And he buys a gas station that is uh, mm -hmm. doomed to failure. And then this falls apart. I don't want to give too much away, but it falls apart due to black beans. And, uh, black eyed peas. Yeah. Black peas, yeah. So, peas, excuse me, yeah. black eyed peas. So um, this, this entire part of his life was not something that, frankly, I was very familiar with. And I think it tells a lot about about the Nelson Algren that we know as the writer. You know, he, he seemed mm -hmm. to have gained a lot of this stuff from personal experience, and he gained, I think, what we, we didn't answer the question when we started out here, but he gained a lot of the respect that he had for working-class people because he had been a working-class person, and he'd seen those struggles up close and personal. So when he was writing about the working class, which was not something that was super common back then, he wrote uh, as if they were actual people because he'd seen them as people. And I wondered if you could comment a little on that. Absolutely. Um, it, and I love that you uh, you were drawn to the college stuff. I was, too. Um, I'll get back to the core of your question in a second. But 
you know, I think that the college thing where he decides to make himself a stoic it really informs the way he proceeds as a writer after that. Now, in college, he wasn't writing anything good. Right. Um, but he was, you know, very, you know, he was very interested in the sort of metaphysical exercise of controlling his body and his urges and, you know, approaching the world in one way. And that's later what he does as a writer. As I said, you know, he was, he was abstentious for the most part. Um, you know, people say that he was an alcoholic, but his first wife says for most of the time she knew him, which is 35 until 57 or 58 when they split and never spoke again, he wouldn't even allow alcohol in the house unless there was going to be a party and then he would buy it. Um, but to go back to your point about the way he approaches his characters and his own upbringing, um, it, absolutely. You know, he, later in life, as he did with a lot of things, and hopefully we can come back to that in a second about how he self-mythologized, but, you know, later in his life, he really downplayed uh, his experiences on the road during the Great Depression, and he really downplayed um, how rough his upbringing was. Um, and, and, you know, digging into that, I found to be incredibly rewarding in terms of understanding who he was. Now, you know, his father was a mechanic who... Um, sometimes made some money, but mostly didn't. Um, by the time they moved to Albany Park, you know, his father's running a garage by himself with no employees, working six days a week, uh, patching tires, basically. Um, and Algren grew up working in the shop quite a bit. And I think one of the defining experiences of his life is, you know, seeing his father, who had worked hard, you know, from the time he was able to walk, basically, because his father grew up on a farm, up until Algren is... Um, approaching college age, he's seeing his father losing his grip on the American dream steadily. Um, by the time Auburn is ready to go off to college, you know, his father is, oh God, late 50s and still working six days a week, still barely scraping by. Uh, and as you say, he goes to college basically, uh, you know, carries himself through by his bootstraps. His sister, who had married somebody with a little bit of money, uh, offered to pay his tuition in college if he would cover everything else. So that's how he ended up in college. He, as you point out, didn't really have any other options, gets there, works the whole way through, uh, and then gets out and returns home and discovers his father um, is going to lose his garage, the family is going to lose their house, um, his sister's husband, the only person in the family with any money, had lost his entire life savings uh, when a bank went belly up, uh, this is, you know, Depths of the Great Depression, 1931, is the year he graduates college. So he, you know, he had been raised in this household that really believed in bootstraps and really believed in the American dream, and, you know, he sort of does his due diligence, he makes it through high school, he goes to college, he comes out, and then they have nothing. He has nothing. He spent months trying to find work after graduating, and there's, there was nothing in Chicago. So he ends up going on the road. And, you know, he wrote throughout his life, a good amount about his travels. Um, you know, first he goes north looking for work, and then he eventually ends up in New Orleans and in Texas, returns to Chicago, uh, makes part of that route again, going again uh, down to Texas. But when he wrote about it, you know, he would sometimes sort of play it for laughs. Um, but when I dug into it, I discovered, I mean, these were, he was miserable. This is a miserable time. This is the Great Depression. There are two million people wandering around looking for work, and he was just sort of anonymous among them. I mean, he wandered for almost two years with quite literally no money for the most part, um, hitchhiking, hopping freight. 
um, you know, sometimes even walking between towns and uh, and begging for work wherever he went. So, yes, that, I mean, that was a very defining experience for him. He came back from that trip saying, you know, I don't believe in the American dream anymore, saying, I, you know, I feel that I have been lied to, and that America, if I remember the quote correctly, is, an, is not a civilized place. And I resent very deeply that I have been lied to about that. Um, that's, that's the instinct that informs his work, I would say, basically throughout his life. Um, I love your point, too, about how you know, he writes about his characters. I don't remember your exact phrasing, but, you know, the way I think about it is that he writes about his characters um, as if there's no difference between him and them, right? They are on an equal footing in terms of their humanity. And that is, you know, not really the way even other radical writers of the time were doing it. You know, if you read other 30s radical writers, you know, their characters are there to convey a message, right? Their characters, um, oh, think of, uh, you know, the jungle, which is actually an earlier time. You know, the main character there, of course, stands up at the end of the book, makes a big speech about the glories of socialism and the evils of capitalism, right? Um, or even Grapes of Wrath, right? Um, there are these moments where it becomes clear that the, the book has a message. And Olger never does that, right? He never sees his characters, he never writes about his characters as a means to an end, right? They are just constituent pieces of the American story, right? No, no less important than, you know, a character from the upper middle class. Colin, uh, did you read any... Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go on. Did you read any Jack Conroy or the Anvil, the, the archived Anvil? I picked up um, from the library that they have a collected works mm-hmm. from the Anvil, which I wanted to talk a little bit about these magazines back then where, where authors yeah, were able absolutely. to get published, which we've, we do have a little bit still, but we've lost a lot of that. And I, and I just want to share one quick anecdote before we go into that. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike sent me... Uh, uh, a, a photo of one of the paragraphs in your book where Elgren was begging to get out of the artillery because it was the worst place in the world. And I'm actually an ex-artilleryman, so we got a big oh really yeah we got a big kick out of that. And also, um, that was frontline infantry that was the worst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was also, you know, going to bring up you were talking about him saying, you know, it's the death of the American dream, and then he got drafted, mm-hmm. went to World War Two, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's an ist- interesting dichotomy because nowadays you know most people that are complaining in that way or communists or socialists aren't going in the military to fight wars and i Mm -hmm. i think that's an important part of his story but i did want to talk about uh conroy and the anvil Mm -hmm. um before we run out of time yeah absolutely um that was another thing that i was glad to discover so the anvil for listeners who aren't familiar with it was a proletarian magazine put out by jack conroy who was from uh moberly missouri uh and it was a little Actually, I don't know what the technology was. I was about to say mimeograph, but that didn't exist at the time. Didn't he uh, print it on a, a printing press from, like, his grandpa had from Norway or something? I, I remember. No, reading. he had, I mean, this is probably <laughs> far too in the weeds for most people, but he had a, a friend who was also a poet who was a farmer and somehow had a printing press. I don't know how he got That's it, what it but was, that, yeah. that gentleman had the press in his barn. Um, and they were forever running out of money to buy paper. Um, but the the Anvil was this little radical magazine that was incredibly influential. Um, they do have an anthology out, which uh, I guess you picked up from the library. Yeah. I found it incredibly hard to find. Seventy-three, I think it was printed or published. Yeah, yeah, and there's a couple of Auburn, or actually four or five of Auburn's pieces in there if you count poetry. Um, 
but I was only able to find one archive in the country that had all of the anvils, uh, and that's luckily for me in New York. Um, uh, one of the NYU libraries has uh, every issue of the anvil on microfilm, and and so I went through all of those. Um, and the anvil, the anvil was incredibly important for Auburn. You know, this trip I was just talking about where he's wandering around looking for work. Well, when that ends, and he decides that he's lost faith in the American dream, within months of his returning to Chicago, the first issue of The Anvil comes out. You know, The Anvil's mission is to, you know, highlight the stories of, of workers of any kind. Um, it wasn't an explicitly revolutionary magazine. Conroy was never a member of the Communist Party, but he was a fellow traveler, and the Communist Party uh, would sell the magazine um, and buy copies of the magazine to distribute, from my understanding. Um, and Auburn discovers this thing. Uh, at, at the time, he had no connections to literature in the literary world at all. You know, he tried to write a little bit in high school and college, but hadn't really had any success. Um, he comes back from this road trip. He wants to be a writer, and then he discovers this magazine that is basically giving him permission to pursue his instinct, right? He thinks the American dream is a lie. Well, Conroy is saying the same thing. Uh, he immediately writes to Conroy, um, sort of looking for a publisher initially. Um, and instead, <laughs> Conroy actually did not publish uh, the first stories that Auburn sent him. Uh, but they become friends and mentors. Um, a short while later, Conroy's first novel, Disinherited, comes out. And he becomes uh, a star. And it's sort of hard to think about um, in our current literary climate. But, you know, Conroy <clears throat> grew up in a mining town. His father died in a mine. Uh, he was a working-class guy his entire life, and his first novel was largely autobiographical. And it came out, and he didn't just become uh, a sensation on the left, but he became a major literary figure with The Disinherited. And, you know, used uh, some of his new influence to benefit Auburn, eventually uh, ended up publishing some of Auburn's works. And the other was important for another reason, which is that a lot of people had the experience that Auburn had, where they had this instinct. They wanted to write radical stuff, but they didn't have any connections, and they would write to Jack Conroy. So the, the section of my book that you had somebody read a moment ago, uh, which was lovely, it talks about A. Barron and Richard Wright. Well, those were both people. A. Barron is a more obscure figure, obviously. Richard Wright, very famous. Um, but A. Barron also discovered the anvil. When he was living in Chicago, I believe he was working part-time at the post office at the time and wanted to be a writer but didn't know how, and he wrote to Conroy. Um, at the post office, Abe Aaron met Richard Wright, and the two of them started having sort of a coffee clash uh, where they would get together and talk about literature. And all of those people ended up being in touch with Conroy, and he ended up getting them together. Um, Conroy would frequently recommend that young left-wing writers join something called the uh, John Reed Club which was a communist-backed arts organization. And the chapter in Chicago was very large. And A. Barron, Richard Wright, and Nelson Auburn all ended up being members and becoming friends and really supporting and encouraging each other for years. Uh, and Conroy and Anvil was really sort of, it was the thing that brought them all together. Uh, so for that generation, it was incredibly important. It's amazing. We only have like one minute left. I know Mike wanted to oh, a quick question. Oh, this is so unfair, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, the first show we ever did with a guest was with Mary Wisniewski. It was her mm. bio on Auburn a, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, Mary, if you're listening, thanks for getting us started. And, and she did a great job. But I wanted to see if you had read that work. 
if you had corresponded with Mary and uh, if you had tried to do something specifically different? No, I mean, um, <laughs> I've, I've maintained a, a strict policy not commenting on uh, other Algon biographies, but besides saying that, um, you know, I respect their work, and it's, it is clear from, there, there are two previous biographies, it's clear that both authors love and respect Algon. Um, after my manuscript was finished, I did go through uh, Mary's book and read it and uh, just to see what she had been saying. But, <clears throat> um, you know, I started writing my book long before her book came out. Uh, I think I got my contract in 2013. Yeah, yeah and hers so was in 2016, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't done when hers came out, um, but I was getting near the end of my book. And like I said, after I, there's actually a year lap between handing in my manuscript and handing in my uh, final draft. And in that gap, uh, I did read her book. Very good. Um, and, you know, I think it's uh, every, great re- every great reader deserves a number of biographies, right? Right, absolutely. Well, we have been speaking with Colin Asher. He is the author of Never a Lovely So Real. More information about this book is at his website. That's colinasher.com, C-O-L-I-N-A-S-H-E-R. Colin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, we Colin. really appreciate Colin. it. We're going to close. It's pleasure. We're going to close with one more reading from his book. We always like to give the authors the last word. So again, Never Lovely So Real. You've been listening to Lumpen Radio and I-94. We'll see you next Sunday. Betty rented a large open flat on the top floor of 1730 and a half Muscatine Avenue in Iowa City and had their things shipped from Chicago. She and Nelson drove to Iowa together in their red Rambler and settled into their new home. Their apartment was only 30 minutes from campus on foot and the street out front was lined with trees. Betty loved it, but Nelson couldn't stand the quiet, missed the city, and immediately regretted accepting his job. Nelson did not think it was possible to teach people how to write, and consequently, He thought creative writing programs were a hustle. He believed that good writing was derived from life experience, and he doubted that anyone who went straight from college to graduate school would ever write a book worth, quote-unquote, rereading. That conviction was derived from his own experience and the experiences of peers like Wright and Conroy, and he had been espousing it for years, in private, in writing, and in public whenever college English departments invited him to speak. The administration at the writer's workshop must have been aware of Nelson's views, but hired him despite his antagonism towards their program. Maybe they doubted the sincerity of his convictions, or thought he would change his mind when he met their students. Whatever the case, they quickly realized how mistaken they were. When the semester began, Nelson was not on campus. He wasn't even in the state. Philip Kaufman had offered him a part in a film called Fearless Frank, so he was in Chicago acting. He returned to Iowa the following week without making any excuse for his absence, and when the administration asked him to speak at a faculty banquet, he delivered a jeremiad against the Vietnam War instead of talking about literature. Nelson's attitude in class was no less dismissive. There are conventions that dictate the way writing workshops are taught, and he abided by none of them. Students expect that their stories will be read and discussed in class, but Nelson saw no point to that. He didn't think most of his students wrote well enough to warrant consideration, so instead he circulated stories written by Terry Southern and Joseph Heller. He believed only one of his students was gifted, a woman named Halloween Nya, and he used class time to praise her writing and compare it favorably to everyone else's. He often arrived in class carrying a stack of magazines, newspapers, and book reviews and encouraged his students to help themselves. He told them that they would need to read if they wanted to be writers, and they would need to experience the world outside of the academy. Drop out, he told them. Get a job. Go to Vietnam. Go to South America. Go anywhere but here. 
Nelson began the semester with 80 students in his lecture course, but within weeks that number had decreased by half, and when his classes got smaller, he made them shorter as well. He often arrived late reading something by Hemingway or Southern, relayed one of his well-worn anecdotes, and then dismissed class and went to the student union. Students soon realized it was best to approach Nelson outside of the classroom. He hated teaching but loved people and conversation, so when young writers handed him their work in public places or at his home, he often held forth until they excused themselves and slipped away. Sometimes he invited his students to the bar after cutting his classes short, talked to them more earnestly than he ever did on campus, and then paid for everyone's drinks. It was in casual meetings like those, where people spoke freely, that Nelson got to know his students and confirmed, he wrote later, the dismal opinion he had always had of writing programs. The longer I hang on here, the longer I stay out of Vietnam, one student told Nelson. It's a respectful way of dropping out, another said. There isn't anything I really want to do, but hanging on here makes it look to my folks like I do. Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Colin Asher, author of Never a Lovely So Real, a biography of Nelson Elgren, out now from W.W. Norton. This episode originally aired on September 1st, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shannon Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.